The Start On Demand. On demand. As of this recording at 10.15 a.m. Thursday, July 25th, the manhunt continues to intensify for two B.C. fugitives believed to be in northern Manitoba. We'll head to Gillam, Manitoba to check in with Global National's Crystal Gamansing. We'll continue what's so far been an amazing trip down memory lane for more discussion about the 1999 Pan Am Games. With a man who was chair of finance for the Games, he says it was a tough job, but one of the most rewarding. And are you a pig, Parker? We'll have a chat about parking after a bozo in Halifax parked in front of a fire hydrant and the fire department had to smash out the windows to make way for the fire hose. Parking 101. Don't park in front of a fire hydrant. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, July 25th podcast for The Start. Mackling and McGarry, McNabb away until August. Tristan Field-Jones is here. Kelly Moore is here. Will Reimer is here. And right now we want to talk about parking because the headline at the HuffingtonPost.ca reads as follows. Halifax firefighters break through car windows to access fire hydrant. Subheadline, parking 101, not in front of a fire hydrant. And you want to know the ironic part of this? And if I'm, if I'm using that terminology incorrectly, let me know, Brett. Okay. There's a sign here. You hold a grudge. No, I'm not holding a grudge at all. I want to know if I'm using this correctly or not. There is a sign that that completely indicates two-hour parking to the left of this fire hydrant that the arrow would indicate you're allowed to park there. So I know the presence of the fire hydrant would overrule anything that it says on the sign, but why is this sign here? And you may have seen this in in other publications and other media that the Halifax Fire Department, because of the part of the fire hydrant they wanted to access, it was directly perpendicular to this car. So they just smashed uh, two windows and ran the hose right through it. Yeah, well, the the parking sign or the sign that says you can park there isn't directly in front of the uh, the fire hydrant. It's sort of, it looks like it's about six feet behind it. So my guess is you can park sort of in front of it or behind it. Can't really tell from this from this angle. I don't know. I don't know if there'd be any room there. Yeah, I'd have to see the the entire street. But regardless, parking in front of a hydrant. If if a sign said it was okay to jump off the bridge, <laughs> exactly, exactly, bingo. Wow. I, I, we, we know what parenting. I think it gives you a chance to fight the ticket, maybe, because there's got to be a maybe. ticket attached to that. But the yeah. But yeah, at this point, everybody should know that you can't park in front of a fire hydrant. I mean, I did. I messed up once when I thought I was far enough from the fire hydrant and I wasn't quite there, so I got a ticket for it, which is fine. But there's a bit of a difference where, you know, I wasn't blocking it directly. Right. This guy's right in front of it. And isn't that, again, I know driver's ed changes over the years, but one thing that hasn't changed don't park directly in front of a fire hydrant. Yeah. Isn't that. I mean, it's standard procedure. Right, exactly. I was going to say common sense, but common sense clearly doesn't exist because you have to use the word common in front of it. Well, and that, that's part of the, the bigger discussion here is common sense when it comes to parking because I am finding it increasingly difficult to get into parking spots because my fellow drivers or motorists, as uh, some would say... <laughs> A more formal terminology. ...do not either know how to park or just don't care 
that they have parked like a complete fool. And Greg, you and were you sandwiched between two complete fools yesterday? I was pretty close yesterday when I came out. I could not open my door. Uh, far enough to get into the car. Now, granted, I have to open the door a little bit wider than uh, than I had to maybe 10 years ago. But even 10 year ago, Greg Mackling could not get into my vehicle because of how close the person to my left had parked to me. I had to actually physically flip their passenger side side view mirror so that I could open the door wide enough to get in. They were One of their tires was right on the yellow line. And they also had a massive scratch down the side of their vehicle, which always makes me feel so good about somebody parking next to me when they're clearly a horrible driver in the first place because you know what caused that. They scraped up against their garage or another vehicle or a light standard. May I submit uh, uh, an explanation on behalf of the defense of uh, of said driver? Yeah, why did did you park like that, Kelly? No, no, (laughs) it wasn't me. I would have left you a nasty note, but... Um, to the to the left of that car was the other car parked properly, or had they squeezed them to force them to? I'm glad you mentioned that, Kelly, because I went to the extent in my Twitter rant yes. to take a picture of the car to the left of the car that was left of me, and sure enough, they were right on that yellow line as well. Okay. So you see the cascading ramifications of a bad decision. So really, the the, the nasty note should have been. I didn't even on know the windshield. I just put it on Twitter for the whole world to see. <laughs> no license plates, though. No license right. plate. Numbers. Oh, okay. Well, would that, you ever do something like this? I, this just happened to me a month ago. I Some guy actually came up to my window and told me off for not moving while he was trying to park in front of him. I was just sitting in my car. I was waiting for somebody. They were doing that something, so I was playing on my phone or whatever. And this guy had all the room in the world to park behind me, but he decides to try and park in front of me, like parallel parking, and he had lots of room. Like, I'm not just saying that. He had tons of room to get in there. And then he comes up, and he's like, well, couldn't you give me a few extra feet? Like, you didn't see me trying to back up? I'm like, dude. Mind your own business, like like I'm doing. Like, like, just go on with your and life. Learn, and learn to park. Yeah. Just thought until you leave, man. Yeah. The, the entitlement. Yeah, the, but that's the, the pig parker situation is a huge problem, and this happens almost every day in my parking lot where I live, where there's one guy who parks almost on the left edge of his spot. Like he's, And the spots are fairly wide, but he parks right on the left edge, which pushes the person to his left, over to the left edge, which means I then have to park close to the left edge. Thankfully, I'm sort of like second to last in line, so the person on the outer edge has more room, uh, so she doesn't have to park necessarily right between the lines, but I still feel like a jerk that I can't park right in the middle, because if I park right in the middle, then I leave the guy to my right, very little room to get into his or her her automobile. I want to ask Tristan a question. Sure. Like if you get out of your car and you realize that you haven't parked exactly correctly in your spot, will you look at it and go, eh, good enough, or will you get in your car and readjust your vehicle? I, I usually do that, and, and fortunately, 
uh, and partly I'm a perfectionist too. So it's, it's kind of a combination of, of the worst things. You know, I, I, when I hear these stories, and I realize this isn't necessarily a practical solution for everybody, I am so glad I've got a subcompact car, and I know that not everyone can, you know, that's not practical for everybody. But, you know, you talk about your really frustrating situation there, Greg, and I think even with my car, I, it, I would fortunately not have to deal with something like that. And I'm certainly not saying, oh, get a smaller car by any means, but I just think, you know, if you don't need the van or if you don't need the truck, maybe look at getting something a little bit smaller because I, the number of times my subcompact has saved me in situations like that, I mean, it practically fits inside a coffee cup. And it's just, you know, I, I again, maybe that's part of it. Maybe because I know how good trucks are made nowadays, maybe consider getting something a little bit smaller that's easier to maneuver. I have a solution, though, to uh, this parking dilemma. And that is every single grocery store or department store or whatever should adopt the Costco attitude. Yeah. Because if if you cause problems for someone in a Costco parking lot with how you have parked, then you clearly need to lose your license. No question. But in a lot of these in a lot of these places, like they allow for a subcompact car, I think. That's the space that they use in, in designing the size of these parking areas. Uh, whereas Costco, like they give you uh, quite a substantial amount of the room to park. The double painted yeah. line, which yeah. accommodates yeah. the open door. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that's not the standard. It's in, the standard in so many places in the United States where you will go to a shopping mm-hmm. mall and they have that double painted line. I don't know, paint... Too expensive here or something? Yeah, they did. They, I think no, the no. Safeway between Marion and Goulet has that as well. I was, they do. I was thinking about that. Why? And, and real quick, I, I remember reading this up. I think it was an old CAA magazine where they were talking about how uh, designers could shave off an inch of every parking space and squeeze in 1.3% more cars. So, some, so it's also a matter of parking spaces getting literally smaller as well. Yes, parking spaces are getting smaller, cars are getting wider, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, for anybody driving a big truck, like a big pickup truck, (laughs) forget it, good luck. Yeah, I believe it was NBC who coined the phrase must-see TV. For many, that saying applied to a long-anticipated appearance by former special counsel Robert Mueller before a House Judiciary Committee on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Reggie Cicchini was there and joins us this morning. Reggie, earlier we heard the president's comments and your report from Global News National last night in the morning session back and forth between Committee Chair Jerry Nadler and Mueller resulted in this. The president could be prosecuted for obstruction of justice crimes after he leaves office, is correct? True. Thank you. Now, Reggie, that sounds self-explanatory. First of all, was it, and did Mueller walk it back a little bit later in the day? Well, I mean, it, it, there are some legalities that uh, that involve how you would go about indicting the, uh, the sitting president after he has already left office because there could be some statute of limitations that would have expired. It would also mean that there would have to be a current investigation that's kind of been shelved right now and waiting for the president to eventually walk out of office, whether that's at the end of next year or four years from now. So it is a possibility. And when he walked, uh, what Mueller ended up walking back later in the day was his reasoning for not charging the sitting president right now because there's a long-standing Office of Legal Counsel policy that says that can't happen because it would essentially halt one branch of government. So he walked back his his uh, his uh, comments of saying that he used that policy and making his decision 
but ultimately that policy did kind of wind up factoring into one of the number of reasons that he didn't make a decision to indict the sitting president. It's very legal and it's very long-winded, but at the end of the day, the president wasn't charged. Yesterday, Reggie, you surmised that there wouldn't really be any sort of gasp-worthy moments. Did anything jump out for you? There really weren't any gasp-worthy moments, and I think the one thing that did jump out was the fact that Republicans were so quick to discredit Robert Mueller. This is a lifelong Republican. He has never been a Democrat. He didn't flip around like the president did. He was a service member for the country, and he's been in the Justice Department for decades. And Republicans sat there and took their uh, took their moments in the spotlight to put whatever work Robert Mueller did uh, over the last two years and kind of throw it out into the trash. Uh, because Mueller said that he was going to stick to his report. He wouldn't go outside of the confines of those four corners, and he didn't, which means that he wasn't able to answer questions on that salacious dossier uh, that was put together by Christopher Steele, and that's all Republicans wanted to be able to talk about, because that pushes the president's narrative of investigate the investigators. So it was a, it was, it was interesting to watch Republicans try to destroy another Republican sitting up there, but outside of that, there were no big kind of ta-da moments for the Democrats, and I think that a lot of people were hoping that would happen, and now it's trying to quickly change the page as to now that that didn't happen, let's find a new win. Mueller's nearly 75. Uh, we, we realized yesterday maybe a little bit difficult. Uh, or has some maybe some difficulty with hearing and wasn't super confident uh, at all times yesterday. In fact, I would say he was uh, lacked confidence more often than he did uh, exhibit any confidence. Are we learning maybe why he was hesitant to come before this committee in the first place? Well, we knew that he didn't want to come before this committee because he had said back in April that his report would be his testimony and he did not want to come forward, uh, ultimately uh, needing a subpoena in order to do that. So it was very obvious that he was struggling to kind of put sentences together because he knew that he was going to be under these Department of Justice guidelines as to what he could and could not say. So he was very much forced to give these kind of yes and no and probably and that's what the report says answers. And, you know, at, at times it was kind of, you know, verbal gymnastics as he was trying trying to make his way through the reports and kind of dodge questions from both parties as they were coming at him. But this is a man who, at the end of the day, looked exhausted after a two-year investigation and I think really wanted to kind of slip off into the sunlight to not have to kind of pay attention to these lawmakers going forward. Uh, but his, his legacy and his words that happened yesterday are likely going to kind of resonate as we head through the next year and a half to the election. Global's Reggie Cicchini joining us live from Washington. Reggie, thank you as always. Thank you. And if you want to read more at globalnews.ca, lots to read. I just Googled globalnews.ca Mueller, and there are like five articles that have gone up in the last 24 hours, the latest of which was published within the last hour. Lawsuits, investigations likely to come following Mueller testimony. And at the homepage for globalnews.ca, one of the top four stories, Trump stood before a presidential seal with golf clubs and an apparent Russian symbol. Oh, boy. Uh, He appeared uh, after the hearing. He was uh, on his way somewhere on uh, the the Air, Air Force Two. Is that what they call the helicopter? Oh, ooh, good well, question. We'll have to look that up. I've got 50 seconds of Trump here. Do we have time to play yep. that here for those that didn't hear it earlier? So we had a very good day today, the Republican Party, our country. There was no defense of what Robert Mueller was trying to defend, in all fairness to Robert Mueller, whether his performance was a bad one or a good one. I think everybody understands that. I think everybody understands what's going on. There was no defense to this ridiculous hoax, this witch hunt that's been going on for a long time. 
pretty much from the time I came down on the escalator with our First Lady. And it's a disgrace what happened. But I think today proved a lot to everybody. In fact, some of my biggest opponents wrote things today that I wouldn't have believed they would have written, and I appreciate that they did that. President Donald Trump in front of Marine One, which is the helicopter that uh, ferries the the president uh, typically to Air Force One, and Air Force Two is... The vice president. There we go. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back in August, a new NHL arena in Calgary closer to becoming a reality. The city, the Calgary Flames, and the Calgary Stampede have agreed on terms for an event center that would become the new home for the Flames and replace the 36-year-old Saddle Dome. Let's head to Calgary to our friends at 770 CHQR. Gord Gillies is co-host of the Morning News with Gord Gillies and Sue DL. So, Gord, uh, this is exciting times, uh, but also controversial in the city of Calgary in the wake of some... Drastic cuts, some people are saying, to basic city services, a proposal before city council to build a new arena. Tell us, uh, first of all, what that new deal looks like uh, potentially for the city of Calgary. Sure. And Greg, just a little background real quick first, because I mean, five years ago when the oil patch started to go into a skid, those downtown buildings began to empty and the days of 2% vacancy rates went to 25%. Those buildings not worth the billions they were, money not going into city coffers. They were losing 200 million a year in property taxes. So put that in the context of things. Council now scrambling to find money. They tried to spread out the property taxes on small business. There was a huge revolt. People were going from $25,000 a year in property taxes five years ago to $175,000 now. So, you know, Greg and Brett's restaurant uh, was now seeing less people come in because of the economy and paying more to just run the place. So all this is going on while uh, the city decides we need to make cuts in order to balance the books. They're deciding what to do. And... On another end, there was a negotiation going on with the Flames to try and get an arena deal. 14 months long. They make a deal. So the talk is, where will the cuts go? And then there's a big announcement. But we're going to spend $275 million on a new rink. I mean, it's just a mess. Uh, the deal itself, I think, is better than the one that was rejected before. Uh, the city's paying two seventy-five. The Flames are paying two seventy-five. The city owns the building, keeps it, gets some revenue from it. The Flames get a bunch of revenue from it as well. They'll stay for 35 years, so there's some good elements to it. But the timing and the optics with the cuts that come in, police, fire, transit, it's just a mess for sure. Yeah, one tweet we were seeing says, make up your mind, Calgary. Either you're in a horrible economic crisis and the whole country should take pity on you or you have 275 million in the couch cushions for a new hockey arena it's one or the other now supporters uh, will say brett uh, it's apples and oranges yeah you got to pay the bills you got to cut back we can take two percent out of the overall budget to do these kind of cuts but you still have to build a city and the timing everybody says the timing as i say the optics are horrible on this city council right now is not in the good books of calgarians for a number of different reasons so they're low on the voter list right now and then these kinds of things coming up just make it a big mess as i say gord this is sort of a unique situation where a city would continue to own an NHL arena. It's almost exclusively the opposite in pretty much every other market, including ours, where 
owners of teams declare it imperative that they own their own building. Why are they doing it in this fashion in Calgary? What's the setup there? I, I think when they sat down to try and come up with the deal, they said, these are the parameters. This is what we have to have. And so that was part of the negotiating. The Flames do want to stay here. They've never said they were going to leave. There were kind of hints and you sort of wondered, but they've never, ever made that big threat. So I think this is the, why the deal was. The council agreed that here are the terms we'll accept. Go try and negotiate with the Flames and see what happens. Well, the Flames came along and decided to play, play ball too. They're happy with what they've got. They gave up some. City got some some of what they wanted and so they make the big announcement it still has to be voted on but it looks like it will go ahead how does this arena stack up like are people at least approving of the the design and what could end up being built we have concepts, no design yet. Uh, I think many people are thinking, yeah, we should probably do this. But again, the optics are horrible with the cuts going on. So we're, we're yet to see what the building will be. But council has also approved you guys expanding the convention center capabilities in Calgary. So there's this East Village, kind of where the Saddle Dome is now, that's really been developed nicely. This will be the new hub. This will be the crown jewel in that hub hopefully bringing in bigger, you know, conventions and the like and giving them something to do at this event center. So we don't know what it'll look like yet. We've got some concept pictures, but that's yet to be determined. Our new arena opened 15 years ago in downtown Winnipeg, and downtown wasn't a very popular place to be. And I think most people in Winnipeg would agree that the arena was the, the next step in regenerating and rejuvenating the downtown of Winnipeg. There had been a lot of public money dumped into the downtown, and it was sort of the first of the private money to start flowing into the downtown. But Calgary doesn't really have that issue, do they, in terms of trying to find areas of the downtown where they're trying to encourage private entrepreneurs and, and private money to come in and develop different areas uh, in and around Victoria Park, which is where the, the Calgary Stampede is and where the Sta Saddle Dome lives now. It used to be that way, I think, Greg, but it's it's changing. I mean, those emptier buildings, as I say, are, are cutting into the bottom line here. The East Village that's being developed, they've done an amazing job on it. It used to be Sketchyville, man. You didn't want to go down there. Uh, and now it's a wonderful place. There's a river walk. So uh, the Stampede wants to try and expand their footprint to be year-round and have events going on all the time. This would be part of that, this event center. If you think of like a, a Nashville where you go in and there's tons of things to do around the big center. Uh, Fremont Street in Vegas, maybe, you know, trying to make this a hub to draw people to come other than hockey or concerts or the Stampede. Just a neat place to go hang out with things going on in Calgary. That's the concept, and we'll see what happens. Thank you, Gord. We really appreciate the insight. Thanks, my man. Anytime, guys. Gord Gillies, co-host of the Morning News with Gord Gillies and Sue DL. At 770 CHQR in Calgary. Sue on a beach somewhere in British Columbia. I asked her, she said she was on a beach. I'm like, you're clearly not in Alberta. Uh, Alberta <laughs> has been allergic to this idea of replacing uh, arenas for the Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flames. The deal in Edmonton got done very differently than this proposed deal in Calgary. The owner of the Edmonton Oilers does own the building in Edmonton. That was never likely to happen in Calgary. The Calgary Stampede, super powerful there. They've, they flex a lot of muscle, uh, but I'm really surprised that, uh, that Calgary is going to cough up nearly $300 million of civic money uh, when they've got tens of millions of cuts in basic and core services on the chopping block. Uh, interesting times in Alberta. It's not 
the mid-90s, the early 2000s in Alberta anymore. Lots of difficult choices being made in that town and in that province. It's always a heated debate whenever public money is used to fund a big facility like this. We are attempting to connect with Global's Crystal Gamansing, who is in Gillum, Manitoba, where two fugitives from BC are believed to be, or at least were believed to have last been seen, wanted for murder. And while we attempt to connect with Crystal, we will give you a heads up that coming up after 9 o'clock here on The Start, we're going to speak with the CFO of the Pan Am Games on the 20th anniversary. As the 20th anniversary of the 1999 Pan Am Games in Winnipeg continues, and then at 9.36, we want to tell you about a great organization in this city. Just a reminder, because I was invited to a golf tournament at Kingswood as a guest of Kingswood uh, for today, and it's in support of Project 11. And when I said to a couple of people that it's for Project 11, they said, well, what's Project 11? And I thought, well, it's it's there are so many great organizations doing great things in the community. How do you keep track of all of them? So we just figured we would take this opportunity to say hello to Project 11 and give you a heads up on what they're doing and what we're going to be doing today. But we have, Greg, now made contact with our guest in Gillum, Manitoba. Crystal Gomansing with uh, Global National is in that northern Manitoba community. She just tweeted out images of RCMP and uh, at least one unusual-looking vehicle, Crystal, uh, that looks a, a little bit more like a military, military type of vehicle that are heading out uh, on patrol or on a search. What can you tell us, Crystal? It is absolutely a, a military-looking sort of armored-up vehicle. Uh, it is one of the vehicles that is in the community here in Gillum. Uh, also a number of canine search teams and a number of other officers sort of getting their day going, uh, figuring out what they are going to be up to and then heading out into the community. The search obviously does continue here in Gillum. You know, these uh, these two individuals have been um, on the loose for a while. Of course, we're talking about Cam McLeod, 19 year old, 19 years old, and Briar Schmigalski, 18 year old. Um, they um, are believed, I'm still using that term, believed to be in this community because other than the initial sighting at the gas station in the nearby community of Split Lake, and then of course the um, the confirmation of the vehicle that was found, RCMP yesterday saying, yes, we do know that the two wanted individuals were in that stolen vehicle. It was later determined to be linked to one of the victims, Leonard Dick. Um, police yesterday actually charging the two wanted men with second-degree murder in connection with his death. So obviously these um, these are wanted individuals and the search for them in this community continues. A lot of people asking me, Crystal, uh, about the mobility and the ability for these two to move on from Gillum. Uh, lots of people know the geography up there. You sent out on Twitter uh, an incredible video. I, I imagine this is when you were landing in Gillum yesterday, or uh, this idea of this community basically being one road in and one road out. I was trying to find the best way to put it, but I think that's probably the best way to describe it. 
Yeah, it's a remote northern Manitoba community. It is, you know, there are a number of people who live here. The, the town area is like any other sort of small town. You have a couple of main roads, a couple of stores, you know, the, the hospital and the, the town office and the RCMP detachment. Um, and, of course, there's uh, Fox Lake First Nation. That basically on the other side of the road. That's where that community begins. So, you know, the sort of town center area, but all around it, we're talking about, you know, dense bush. There's the hydro dam on the other side and, 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 and the river so you know there there isn't a lot of options as far as where do you go and you know we heard the the mayor Dwayne Foreman talking about that earlier saying you know odd choice because once you're here you're here but then again we just we don't know what these two individuals are thinking are they still here are they camping are they you know making their way through the bush what are they doing were they able to get out of this community are they somewhere else obviously rcmp have some information that suggests they should stay here and keep looking we do know they're using drones and dogs and search teams and helicopters uh, they're making use of the manitoba hydro um, facilities up here to to add an aerial search we know that they're using that helicopter so you know um it, it's complex it's difficult and and they're continuing on trying to to get some clue as to where these two individuals are when you speak to locals and you put out the the possibility or the notion that they might be in the bush making their way who knows where you must get a reaction from locals when that suggestion or that that thought is presented well, the, the conversation is kind of interesting, right? Even this morning at breakfast, you hear people, you know, saying, oh, they'll find them. They'll find them. If they're in that bush, they'll find them. Because it's not only today is a little chilly, it's gray and overcast, a little bit drizzly. Um, but you're also talking, you know, thick, thick uh, insect situation. So there are a couple of uh, natural factors here. But again, we don't know the skill of these two individuals. Um, we I do have a source who said at least one of them is supposed to be quite an outdoorsman and quite skilled. We don't know what supplies they were able to pick up. We know that they stopped somewhere in northern Saskatchewan as well and and were uh, spotted at a hardware store. What they gathered, uh, we just don't know. We don't know if they are armed. We don't know what that situation is either. So authorities, um, you know, keeping their details very close to their chest as to how they're dealing with this search, obviously not wanting to give too much away. But, you know, we don't know what they're facing potentially with these two. Well, especially after the father of one of the suspects, Briar Schmigelski, the father, Alan, saying that he believes his son wants to go out in what he describes as a blaze of glory. That is obviously troubling, right? And if you're one of these officers who is standing looking at a giant, dense bush thinking, okay, we have to go in there and try to find these people, it makes more sense why you're, they're utilizing some, some tools such as drones, such as helicopters, such as, as uh, you know, search dogs to, to see what's around there. So, you know, they are going to be as careful as they possibly can be, uh, but still doing their job. Crystal Commencing joining us live on 680 CJOB from Global National. Crystal, thank you very much for this. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Mackling and McGarry, question of the day at cjob.com, brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. Do you think the city should become involved in needle removal on private property? 56.7% so far say yes, 43.3% say no. You can cast your vote at cjob.com. So this, this is the question of the day, because yesterday morning, 
Greg, we were talking about, we just kind of gave a casual shout out to the Bear Clan for doing the great work that they do. Because one of my buddies who works in the North End texted me the day before on Tuesday and said, this is what I had to deal with today. You remember your needle story outside Polo Park where you found a needle? Well, look what I found behind my shop today. Didn't mention his name. Didn't mention the restaurant. We can mention it now because he has since spoken with Global News. His name is Mike Rogers. He's an old friend of mine. And the restaurant is The White Top. It's at Salter and Manitoba. And by the way, have you ever been there, Greg? I hate to confess this because you've been raving about it for as long as I've known you. Mm-hmm. I have not. Well, there, there are a million places to eat in the city of Winnipeg, so you, no one can blame you for that. But if you've never been there, best burgers I've ever had. And don't just take my word for it. They were voted the best burger in Winnipeg on a big poll in the city a couple of years ago. Great poutine. I love going there. when I, 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 go, I try to make the, the trip out there a couple of times a year. Uh because I like to go when Mike's working, but usually that's around the same time I'm working, whatever. But so Mike texts me and says that he found this pile of trash behind the shop, sort of in their drive-through area, and it was it looked like someone had tipped over uh, just a like a grocery cart. And you can see the pictures at cjob.com. We've got a story uh, front and center about how the Bear Clan is calling on the city of Winnipeg to hire. An organization to clean up used needles. So Mike, the, the the Coles notes. Mike calls the city. City says we can't come clean it up because it's on private property. Call Street Connections. It's a private company. They can come do it. And Mike instead called the Bear Clan. And Clay Young went out to see Mike Rogers, manager of the White Top Drive In, to get more of that story. Here's how it went. Just pulled into work. I can see right through the right down the drive through, and there was a, a, a pile of garbage. Looked like a Someone tipped over a shopping cart um, of some sort. Uh, it's the north end. It happens every once in a while. I just I grab a shovel, a uh, shopping cart to clean it up. Notice a few stray needles. Think no big deal. Uh, I continue cleaning it. Um, and then I noticed several more. At that point, I stopped um, and tried to call the police non-emergency line. Uh, I ended up waiting... 15 minutes on hold um, fortunately I know that Salter is a, is a thoroughfare of the police so I was able to flag down a car um, they pulled over they were able to contact uh, the city and public works uh, at that point they said the city would send somebody to come clean it up if they have a hazardous waste um, or something like that uh, within about 10 minutes I got a call from somebody at public works that said because it's on private property that they wouldn't come and clean it up. Uh, And he would give me the number for a private company that would come and clean it up. Uh, I just decided that I would would try to clean up a little bit more um, and then know that the Bear Clan does this kind of thing. And I gave him a phone call. Uh, James Fable almost immediately called me back uh, and had someone out here in two hours. Uh, ended up picking up 13 needles, and uh, yeah, I just I can't thank them enough. They do such great work in the North End. So initially, when you started looking through this pile of garbage, you noticed some needles, and then you started seeing more and more. Yeah, there were a couple needles on the ground. I just figured that was run of the mill, I suppose. Uh, as I started cleaning more through the pile. Uh, there were just there were more. I figured at that point there were at least half a dozen in there, um, and and figured that it was more than I should probably have to 
deal with or safely deal with. What do you think of the city's response? To be honest, I'm I'm incredibly disappointed. Um, for the way that that uh, everybody's talking in the news, we clearly do have a problem with this. Um, I thought the city would have jumped at the opportunity to, to help get some of this off the streets so it doesn't affect anybody, so it doesn't, you know, hurt anybody, hurt a child. Even though the drive-through uh, that I'm sure cars use, all it's considered private property. It is, yes. Um, but it's also a public thoroughfare. People use this to get to the alley. Kids are, are running through here and riding bikes. We're in, we're in a neighborhood. There'll be somebody playing, a, a child will step on one. Um, somebody that's even looking for scrap metal going up through alleys could dig through a pile and, and poke their hand or arm on a needle. It's only a matter of time. Is this the uh, first time you've come across that many needles since, you know, you've been out here? It's the first time I've ever come across a needle out here. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no, just once again, I'd like to thank uh, James Fable and the, the Bear Clan for the tremendous work they do in the neighborhood and, and all over the city. That's Mike Rogers at the White, Tro- White Top Drive-In at Salter and Manitoba. Now, we contacted the city for a response and received the following statement. When the city becomes aware of discarded needles on public property, we dispatch a crew within one day to inspect, remove, and dispose of the needles. If someone spots a needle on public property, they should contact 311 to let us know the location. If someone finds discarded needles on private property, they should contact Street Connections for removal and disposal services. Greg, one of our listeners, Kevin the Garbage Man, Mm -hmm. he texted us yesterday morning to say that he deals with this kind of stuff all the time. But he has a protocol. He has certain tools in place. He wears goggles. He has gloves. He uses an old... Uh, like a Pepsi bottle or a soft drink bottle, and that's what he'll put them inside. But, but he's dealt with them before and feels comfortable doing so. Lots of people do not have experience doing it, would not feel comfortable. It's not just the needle, the needle point. What else is the the vial, the plunger? Any part of that needle could be contaminated with all sorts of different germs, bacteria. Like, who knows? If you find something in a park and your kids are around in a park, you're not going to have any of those things at your disposal. You're, you're in sort of a catch-22 situation. Most of us will have a phone on us, can call 311. They're going to come out in a day. So what do you do? You're alone with your kids in a park. You know there could be other kids coming to the park. It's a little bit of a hike home to go and get goggles, gloves, and, and clean it up. How do you make sure that nobody touches that needle in the meantime? It's a real quandary, like how, how you handle this. Street Connections, by the way, they're the organization uh, that that organizes and de- deals with uh, the, the needle exchange program. So that's why uh, they, they're they uh, they're involved in what, why people are bringing them up. They're, they're a product of the WRHA. Mackling, McGarry, and Moore. Sitting in for Loren McNabb at this moment. She's back in August because we want to continue our trip down memory lane for the 20th anniversary of the Pan Am Games 
which were held right here in Winnipeg. And in studio with us, we have CFO Greg Hansen. How are you, Greg? Just great. Great to be here with you this morning to reminisce on something that was a great part of Winnipeg's history. Greg, you have such a fantastic voice. Uh, do you mind uh, nuzzling up and cozying up okay. to the microphone? There we <laughs> that go. That sounds good. We want our listeners to hear you. So you were the CFO, or like, is this continuing like 20 years later? Are, are, are you still... Uh, <laughs> Still doing the math, or, well, or, was, or the books closed? Well, uh, the, the books are certainly closed. I was the uh, chair of finance. Uh, the reason I got involved was in 1994 when Sandy was asked to be chair by Susan Thompson. Sandy he, Riley, Sandy we're talking, Riley, yeah. that is. He uh, gave me a call and said, "Greg, he said, if I'm going to take this position, I want somebody who is going to do a good job of the accounting and finance end of things. <laughs> so, would you consider it?" Anyway, told him I had to think about it for 24 hours, and I got. The go-ahead by our chief, uh, or our board of directors at the time, I was president and CEO of Wawanisa, and then my wife, and so I was off on a great, great uh, event. So finance, Kelly, always a big question mark around any big event like this, right? There's government money involved, there's sponsorship money. And so I can recall as as a citizen that there were some of those questions about the the viability of a games like this for Winnipeg. From your point of view, was that a big part of the conversation as well? Was were these games going going to break even? What was the discussion around money? Yeah, I I think there's always uh, uh, the the concern as to whether uh, the games were going to be able to to pull it off. And uh, I, I actually have the benefit of, of having a chat with Greg about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And, you know, it, speaking of money, Greg, like it, it, it was an interesting time uh, for yourself and, and some other people who were involved in the discussions with the various levels of government, wasn't it? Exactly, because it's really the three levels of government that bid for the games. And then they turn it over to volunteers like us to try and deliver on that uh, promise. And and one of the things that they assured us is that the money would be there to um, execute on the games effectively. Our budget was set up at $148 million, And if you compare that to when Toronto hosted the games recently, theirs was over $1.5 billion or something like that. So 10 times the, the, the kinds of numbers that we were talking about. So, and um, later in the... In the time period, starting with 1994, when I got involved, about 1997, uh, the government said said the two levels of government, the federal and provincial, had still not come forward with the additional funds that they had promised, and we were uh, appealing to them. And so we had an interesting trip down to, uh, we, we had assurances from Gary Philman and Eric Stephenson that the extra $20 million that they had promised would be there, provided the federal government was going to match. So Sandy and I had uh, an interesting flight down to uh, Ottawa to meet with Jean Chrétien uh, to see if we could convince him that he better open his wallet for the last $20 million. It was right at the heat of the ice storm in, in eastern Canada at that time. We arrived in Ottawa that morning. And we went to meet with him in his office. He called us and said he couldn't come because they had a, an emergency um, meeting of cabinet. And uh, anyway, he had, to make a long story short, he had some of his most trusted advisors meet with us. We gave them our pitch. And two days later, they called us and said, all right, you've got the money to finish the game. So even then, there were some sleepless nights because you can. we had some contingency built into the Games and in the end, there was an eight million dollar surplus that benefited the community. But 
It was there were some sleepless nights and some worries along the way. There was some consternation and and some I, I don't know uh, criticism of the fact that the, the legacy in terms of facilities was maybe not what it was in 1967. And once again, this is my personal recollection. Feel free to set the record straight in actuality, Greg. But you know, we had the velodrome that was a permanent fixture here in Polo Park for a long time. It hosted high school football for years. It was used as a a velodrome was concrete construction. We had Alexander Park and this whole area around Polo Park benefited. We had the Pan Am Pool, of course, was the, I guess, the centerpiece of that. Uh, Shaw Park, I guess we would say, ended up being the physical legacy in terms of facilities. Were there others? Well, there there certainly were, but one of the reasons, remember, that we got the games, we're the only city that's ever hosted them twice, and one of the reasons why we got the games is because we did a, such a good job in, previously in 67, and um, uh, then... And, and most of the facilities were still in, in pretty good operating condition. There were, had to be some significant improvements to the Pan Am pool, for example, and upgrades to various facilities. But uh, that's why we were able to, to keep the budget down to $148 million, was because we weren't investing as much in, in facilities. Now, at the end of the day, there was at least $20 million that was invested in facilities. I can't remember the breakdown of exactly where all that money went, uh, but... Uh, it was some enhancements and some things like shop art. When I Google your name, it pops up with that you were in the your Order of Canada, local philanthropist, surprised by award. Yeah, I see you're just like it's it's this endless stream of community <laughs> things that you're involved with over the years. And in this case, you were also a volunteer. So what drives your passion to be involved in the community on a continuous volunteer basis? Well, I, I think that I've been a volunteer. I know I've been a volunteer all my life and for many, many different organizations. And I, um, I absolutely love giving back to the community. I think we're so fortunate to live in a city like Winnipeg. We're for a, a province like Manitoba and a country like Canada. So we all have an obligation to do our part to make it a better place for all. And um, I've been motivated on many different things. But the biggest challenge in a volunteer capacity in my life was certainly the Pan Am Games. And sometimes, you know, when you were sitting there in in the uh, trenches, I'll call it, it was almost like going to war. You know, there was always another challenge. There was always another issue that had to be solved. And sometimes you just wish you weren't there. You wish somebody <laughs> else could be there. But when it was all over, it was a very emotional ride. And, and we made some very, very great friendships with the people we worked with. And uh, at the end of it, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't do it again either. But <laughs> <laughs> sort of like high school for me. <laughs> I'd like to do it over, but I wouldn't. Uh, you know, the legacy of the 67 games was something you mentioned in terms of the, the opportunity to host in 99. And I've heard stories over the year that Mayor Richard Daly of Chicago at the time said to Mayor Juba, like, Winnipeg, you guys should bid for the Olympics. That's how well run the 67 games were. 9,000, I think, were the volunteer base in 67. You had over 20,000 volunteers for the Pan Am games. And Kelly, we were talking about ticket sales. And and so not only did people in Winnipeg step up in terms of volunteering and making this happen, there were concerns about how many people are going to come and see these events. 
People came in droves. Oh, absolutely. And so, Greg, when what what stage of the games was it where, and I don't know if you're ever able to sit back and breathe easy and say, okay, we, we, we're going to make it, we're going to finish in the block. Was it the second to last day, third to last well, day? Well, no, or? it was about midway through the, the games. Uh, the end of the first week, we hadn't had any bad weather, and bad weather can set you back on either ticket sales or on uh, postponing venues or moving things around. So we had some contingency to deal with those. And we, uh, Bobby McMahon and I, who was the CFO, and that was probably the best decision I ever made was hiring him for that position. And because he and I worked exceptionally well together. And uh, we both looked at each other and we said, yeah, I think we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Not only are we going to make it, but we're going to have a surplus. And that made me feel good because Paul Martin had come to my office a year earlier and, and wanted to come and see me. And we spent an hour and a half discussing it. And he wanted to see the whites of my eyes and me to tell him that we were going to have a surplus. So this was, was a finance minister? He was minister of finance at the time. <laughs> so, and Paul Martin, you know, he runs in a big circle. No, no big deal, right? <laughs> But so in terms of, of your memories, it sounds like you had pen and pencil, pen or pencil in hand most of the time with a ledger sheet here, Greg. But in terms of the cultural events and everything that happened around the Pan Am Games, it, it really was a magical time in the city of Winnipeg. And, and I don't think most people anticipated it would be so. That It was it was touch and go yeah, b- before, before, before the opening ceremonies. But for those two weeks, it just... Something clicked. And it was an emotional high. You know, I remember, I've, I don't cry very often in my life, but in my adult life anyway. And uh, I remember the morning, uh, July the 23rd and, and the morning, and I woke up and I said, you know, to myself, I was all first one up in the house and I went downstairs and I just started crying. The tears were just flowing out of me and they weren't tears of, of sadness. They were tears of joy that it's finally here. It's finally there. And, um, and, and we're going we're gonna to do this. And then the other thing that was really an emotional one was the closing day. We, the board met every morning at 7.30 in the morning to go over the venues and where the problems were and what fires had to be put out. And um, we uh, finally on the closing day, Sandy said, he says, is there anything else to talk about this morning? It was our shortest meeting ever. And he said, no, not much. He says, okay, we're going to go around the table and we're going to get input from each person. Well, Every second person was, every person was very verklempt and, and emotional, but every second person would bo- bro- break into tears of joy and happiness. And especially I remember Paul Robson, you know, big, big <laughs> Paul, tough, tough Paul Robson. And he, he broke into tears that morning. And I thought, boy, I guess it's okay to cry. Big former CFL football player, oh. GM of the Blue Bombers. Right. As yeah. hard-nosed a negotiator as there is. <laughs> That's it. Oh. Uh, magical memories, Greg. Thank for you sure. for your volunteerism. Thank you for what you've done for the community uh, for years, and in particular, those four or five yeah. years of your life. I just want to jump in here. One other big name that this guy hangs around with on a regular basis is an Olympic medalist. Yeah. His daughter, Janine. My daughter was uh, was um, she was motivated by the the Pan Am Games at the time, and then she went on to a terrific rowing career. Eight years in the United States, rowing for the Mich- University of Michigan, and she and, was legitimately on the rowing. Yeah, yeah. Team. Oh, sorry, yeah. four year, four years on the, <laughs> legitimately on the rowing team, and then came back and rowed for her country for four eight years. Greg Hansen was the chair of finance for the 1999 Pan Am Games here in Winnipeg. Greg, thank you for the visit. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. Great to be here with you this morning. And thanks to all of Winnipeg for helping making the Pan Am Games a success.
Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.